welcome or welcome back to the Technicast, the Arts and Humanities podcasting community, where we invite different researchers on to talk about their work with us. The Technicast is run by Techni-funded PhD students Julian Klon, Felix Klutzen and me, Polly Hemper. I'm particularly excited to bring you today's episode, which continues our theme of identities, as we welcome Julian as our featured guest today to talk about his experience of identity and home. As well as his work here producing and interviewing on the Technicast, Julian is a PhD student at Kingston University working on a creative non-fiction book as a poesis of home in London City. Alongside this, his critical work focuses on writing the home. What follows is a short talk from Julian about the politics of home, identity, belonging and the other, and then a conversation unpacking, or at least attempting to unpack, some of these complex topics with Felix, Julian and me. I hope you enjoy. Does this ever happen to you? You meet someone, you get chatting, and then they ask, So, where is home for you? It can be perfectly innocent. I'm an optimist and, as a rule, I prefer to believe people mean well. But in my case, what people are really asking, and they do ask it, is, do you feel more German or more French? I always struggle to answer these questions because they both come laden with hidden meanings. They come with assumptions about the meaning of home and assumptions about identity. Now, we all know not to make an ass of you and me, but I wonder whether that's inevitable when we talk about identity, or rather, the notion that's implied in the plural, identities, as if I were a character in a role-playing game made up of precast blocks. No, identity, as in that which you prove, suggests uniqueness. There is one of me. Let me give you a brief bio, not because I'm self-obsessed or anything, but because it is pertinent. I was born in France to a French father and a German mother. When I was young, we moved back and forth across the Rhine so that I went to school alternately in both countries. Now, after travelling and moving around a fair bit and doing all sorts of jobs and all sorts of fun things, I've lived in the UK for nearly seven years, more than five of them in London. I grew up speaking French and German, but I work, write, dream, live and love in English, albeit with the accent that you're hearing. And like my tall blonde stature, it is undoubtedly foreign, for want of a better word, but it's also somewhat difficult to place, I'm told. Possibly Dutch? Maybe Scandinavian? So now you tell me, am I more German or more French? What does it even mean to be German or French or British or Chinese or Kurdish, for that matter? What even is a nation? It's certainly not a place. In the 20th century alone, what we know as Germany went through four or five different iterations. Benedict Anderson calls the nation an imagined community. Nations are inventions, especially of the 18th and 19th centuries, and at their origins... They were used for positive reasons, much like Gayatri Spivak's strategic essentialism. They were used in order to bind people together, to rally them behind the common cause, say, for example, to gain freedom from the aristocratic ruling class. So in short, nations were invented to create community. It seems to me that all identities are imagined in the same way. 
They are fictions that we tell ourselves, fictions we embrace, fictions we tell others in an attempt to find community. But it's that very act of telling that makes identity so problematic to me. Because to see identities as narratives moves them into Michel Foucault's realm of discourse. According to Foucault, Discourse is the ways of constituting knowledge together with social practices through communications and representations. So discourse is a social construct that determines what is right and wrong. Now the idea of Germanness is what the dominant groups of Germans make it out to be. And it is acting as though I had that identity that gives it to me. I am German if I behave like a German person does. Or, crucially, if someone else thinks that I do. Because the basic condition of discourse is that it is power structures that govern it. Franz Fanon, the psychiatrist and cultural theorist, puts it another way that maybe more clearly exemplifies these power relations. Fanon doesn't write about the nation, but about racial identity. And that's different, of course, but it still gives us a valuable perspective on identity in general, I think. He writes, As soon as I desire, I ask to be recognised. Note that he does not talk about the fact of being black so much as about the social construct of blackness. For he continues, The colonial subject is always overdetermined from without. As colonial whites in power mark him out as non-white, they impose all the socio-politico-cultural associations that come with that. So in short, it is the dominant discourse that constitutes his black identity. That means that Fanon's is a reclamation within the structures of power and discourse. He claims the right to rewrite the story, the right to narrate the self, for him, the assertion of his own identity is a means to regain humanity in that colonial context of othering. And the importance of this act cannot be understated. It's a hugely positive and necessary step to rebalance the oppressive power structures when we move in discourse. And must be clear, the kind of othering violence that Fanon talks about is not one which I, as a Western European white man, have ever experienced or am ever likely to experience. But there are nevertheless similarities, I would say, between a German or Frenchness and this overdetermination from without. To see identities as discourse highlights the process of identification. And as a process, it involves at least two parties. Fanon's reclamation of the right to narrate is really an attempt to influence the other party, he asks to be recognised. Or to put it differently, the subaltern speaks, to quote Spivak once again, but that implies a flip side. Is the subaltern also heard? For what is identity without recognition? And that's where I struggle most. Because in order to be recognised by an other, it seems to me that identity necessarily has to be something tangible, objective, external, something that can be understood and grasped. And that, to me, requires identity to be somewhat fixed or rigid. And indeed, identity comes from the Latin for the same. 
and that suggests that there is something identical. So what would it mean for me to have a German or French identity? My idea of what it means to be French or German may be, and probably is, very different from yours. It's probably different from my friend's idea, from my family's, let alone the millions of other German and French people. So what's the element that makes us identical, and is that measurable? And do you see why I struggle to answer that question? Am I more German or more French? Seeing my confusion, people often follow up by asking, well, where were you born? Jumping blithely between discourse and location. And this importance given to the native place disturbs me because it betrays how deeply ingrained the nation is. Now let's have some more etymological fun. Nation comes from the Latin natus, that which has been born. As if origins would give us an idea, as if being born in the same country, whatever that is, would make us identical enough to identify through it. And yet, it does sit deep. Even for Edward Said, considered by many the founder of post-colonial thought, his native place continued to have a firm grip on his identity. Despite living in New York for most of his adult life, despite admitting that New York had deeply influenced his thought, he described himself as an exile. That's his prerogative, who am I to deny him that? But by that token, Said would have me be an émigré, defined by voluntarily choosing to leave my native place. And that I refuse. I refuse the implication that my native place might still have an over-determining influence on me. I refuse the rigidity and especially the backwards-looking nature of it. Now, let me pause here. I don't mean to suggest that identity has no value. As I discussed earlier, identity is a fiction that can bind people together, and it is, I believe, an essential step to Hintergenert's Bivak in order to create community. But I wonder what the limitations might be of a community built on such a concept of identity, based on discourse. Is that not condemned to an eternal power struggle, like a pendulum swinging eternally? How do we break with that? Can we not imagine another kind of community? The philosopher Jean-Luc Nancy sees community as being in common, and it is this that I would like to focus on. For a start, in common would seem to invalidate a plural. Identities suggests division and fragmentation. And secondly, phenomenologists from Husserl and Heidegger and Merleau-Ponty all the way through to Nancy himself tell us that being is inextricably tied to place, for place anchors our experience. At its most fundamental level, it is place that we have in common. So I'd like to reimagine the concept of roots. To me, roots are not synonymous with origins. Instead, roots are a connection to the place. And I'm inspired here by the rhizome. Let that be the rhizome of Deleuze and Guattari, for whom it's a metaphor for a culture without a beginning or an end, without linearity or origins. A culture that is made and remade by connections, by interactions by being in place. But let it also be the rhizome of the wood wide web, where mycorrhizae or fungi allow various trees and plants in a forest to communicate, 
to share resources, to give as much as to take, to become one through what Homi Baba calls difference inequality. That kind of rootedness moves place beyond the purely discursive, beyond the power dynamic of social constructs. It returns the embodied self, the embodied mind, to what is real, what is felt, what is sensed. That kind of rootedness focuses on the human place relationship. But through that, to quote Sten Moslund, a deep human interconnectedness emerges, not from the recognition of identity, but from the recognition of our alterity in a shared experience. That kind of rootedness is what I would call home. The former chief planning officer of the City of London, Peter Rees, says, When you come to London, for the first two weeks you're a tourist. From the third week onwards, you can be a Londoner and nobody will challenge that. And that's because London is not imagined in the same way as a nation is. It is a place real and felt and sensed that allows for being. To answer those questions then, where is home for me? Do I feel more German or more French? Well, I'm both and more with a unique mix of cultural experiences and I'm open to new ones too, and I'm neither. I'm not from London, but I am a Londoner. And that's less an identity than a commitment. A commitment to the necessarily unique place. A commitment to growing together. A commitment to a varied community rooted in this common ground. That it calls London home. Julian, thank you so much for your talk and for speaking to Felix and me today. After such a long time working on Technicast together, it's just a delight to shine a spotlight on your research and to hear a bit more about your work. I really enjoyed it. I loved your handling of identity, of home, of communities, and the idea of those rhizomatic roots. Um, I feel it, it just throws up so much food for thought and there's just so much to discuss. Felix and I both wanted to start off by asking you just whether you could expand a bit on how you first got started thinking about this topic. Thanks. Yeah, it's it's really nice to be here in, you know, in the sort of contributor's chair and on the receiving end of all of this. Um, I'm curious and excited. Um, yeah, it's... It's weirdly I have a very precise answer to this question because I actually wrote an essay about it a few years ago. And it all started when I was back home, as it were. I was at my mum's house and we went for a walk in the region. And it's, it's quite a nice region. It's nothing sort of stand out. But um, it's a place called Swabia in Germany near, near Tübingen. And anyway, we were standing there on this promontory overlooking the region. And, and my mum asked me, is this home for you? And it was this sort of heartbreaking question because I felt, you know, whatever I say now will be very loaded. So I had to say no, unfortunately, because it just didn't feel like it, even though there are a lot of historical experiences that I've had there and personal growth and everything. But because, as I said, we moved around so much and then I wasn't living there anymore, it didn't feel like home anymore. So it made me question what is home? What, it is, was it, what is it for me? And what is it in general? And um, so I started reading up on it and thinking about it. And that's what brought me to this. And how would you 
define that relationship between identity and place because obviously a, a strong part of that is connection to particular people and particular memories but there must also be a part of that that is connected to the the town or the countryside of that particular geographical area yeah um i mean that's a question that i'm that i'm still probing that i'm not sure i'll ever come up with a with a clear answer to but i think it starts for me it starts with defining place so what place means and that's something that i've that i've been working on um in a sort of early early phase of the phd and and that brought me to thinkers like soja and and malpas and ralph and all of these people who are trying to come to terms with this real and imagined element so soja calls it the third space so he takes the first space to be this sort of very real place the concrete the tangible and then the second space to be the social construct with that. And then he comes up with this third space, which is a mix of the two. And then I think what happened, especially throughout sort of postmodernist thinkers and a lot of postcolonial thinkers, they started addressing especially the second space, the social construct, the politics of it, the power that is involved in that, which I address a little bit. And what that meant for me was I was going back to that, like, what's... What about the real, though? You know, like, where does that come back in? And um, so reading about that, it brought me back to to those elements of the felt, of the, the sort of, you know, like moving around the landscapes, but also cityscapes, you know, buildings, all of that, how much that reflects your idea of home. So that was the first element. And then to your second part, yeah, people are definitely part of it, history, myth. But all of that, I think, for me, became more interesting as how it's lived, so because when I started thinking about home, it made me think that a lot of people think about it in a backward looking way, in a nostalgic way, which isn't there in the real, you know, it's all in our minds. So for me, that moved it to, you know, what are my relationships now? Who do I engage with now? What are the memories that are still alive, you know, traditions that are still lived and all of that stuff. So that brought me to where I am, basically. That sounds like it almost flowed into your idea of, of roots the way that you were talking about roots is quite sort of similar to what you said there and it's similar to, your, to our first question how did you arrive at this idea of roots and two could you say a bit more about it please <laughs> yeah um, I mean how do I I think you know I don't think it's necessarily an original idea of roots I think you know Deleuze Watari wrote about the rhizome years ago and then there's there's this that I also mentioned the wood white web, which was uh, something that that came up was it sort of ten years ago. It's quite a famous book about how how these uh, mycorrhizae um, define the forest or help the forest to become one. You know, and then there were all these metaphors of the socialist forest. So I think that's how I got there. I don't think it's um, it's something that I created, um, but it as you said, um, I think that came from that thought that really what home means to me is more what I engage with and and uh, so all of this active engagement all of this um, sort of sharing the space that you're in is what made this idea of roots emerge but then I also saw it in in poetry so there's this poet that I that I use in my PhD called Caleb Femi it's a very strong poetry collection which won a few prizes recently and um, it's called Poor and it's mostly, almost exclusively set in sort of the North Peckham estate. And it's addressing that idea of home, you know, which is not one we would easily associate with it. But he engages it in a really interesting way. And the imagery of roots 
comes up a lot in it. How did they come up in poetry? Well, so he talks a lot about being uprooted, but even just, you know, after finding a bit of success, sort of moving to Hackney, you know, and he describes that, okay, I was uprooted, you know, woke up uprooted. So that the connection was gone, even though it was, it was clearly still, still Mm -hmm. there, but it wasn't connected in the same way to the place. And then sort of the boys in it are often described as trees or as vine or as all of these things that grow around the place. And so it wasn't so much about roots because he's of Nigerian descent. Um, so he was born there, I think, but moved over here quite quite young. Um, so it, it doesn't really talk about that as roots, but really much more about this connection to the place. And even concrete, you know, can be soil that sort of thing so concrete becomes soil as well as as an image and um so yeah that's to me you know was was uh, was gold dust because i could I bring all these ideas together i'm interested in that sense because you you're talking about the lived experience and it's like it's a continuously regenerating thing or or at least constantly shifting because you engage with it and then you were talking about having alterity in in shared experience so how important is it for a sense of identity to keep widening your perspective to, to do new things and then kind of recalibrate and recalibrate? And is that something that you, that you consider, particularly as you had that sort of thing from an early age where you were moving around a lot in a way that some children uh, wouldn't do? Yeah, I'd say, I'd say it's really important. I mean, I think that that depends on, on your, your vision of identity. I mean, clearly I have... I have a sense of identity that I try to to explore in the piece um, and to me you know there's this sort of individual identity which is the number of experiences that I have made individually not necessarily an external one um, but if you go towards this sense of community and you try to link it with roots I think that means you have you need both the ability and the willingness to grow those roots and to engage so there's this element of your stepping into the community into the soil and opening yourself up to all of this stuff so to become part of it meaning to give and to take so to share and then to grow closer and closer together into this community identity so that's where i think lived experience comes in and we're embracing the alterity, embracing the difference. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you adopt another kind of identity, but your own feeds into that communal sense, um, which is what I think makes it really interesting. And then when you bring in, you know, tradition can be something that is artificially kept alive in this nostalgic sense, or it's something that evolves and grows and becomes something new. When you think about Notting Hill Carnival, for example, you know, was brought over by by Caribbean West Indies people. It started really quite small as a sense of, you know, bringing these people who lived in a diaspora together. But then, as we know, that was then embraced by by people um, all over London, became this massive festival, um, which, of course, is no longer what it was. And some people might take issue with it because it's you know not that. And you can talk about cultural appropriation, but it is become something that is essential for London, you know, and that marks marks the year, marks um marks the community as a whole. So that sort of thing is what I mean, I think, when I talk about lived experience and embracing alterity. And so it's a case of uh, uh or or one part of it could be a case that an individual goes away and has lived experiences and then they have the 
the opportunity or the responsibility or something to bring that experience back and somehow bring it into the community or, or that can and, and therefore can have an effect on the uh, and have an effect on the communal identity as well i mean i'd say so and i think you know historically that that also happened because no one in you know let's use europe or the old world if you will as a, as a whole you know no one was just completely isolated. I mean, regardless of what some people might say, you know, even even Great Britain or England is not an island. I mean, in that sense, so there's all sorts of things that were imported, and and they were important, partly you know by force, you know, imposed on people, but also partly by a significant amount of people bringing back other experiences and um, and feeding that in. So I would say yes, it's. In a communal sense, it's sort of a responsibility, yeah, definitely, to um, to give and to take, and not to just be a a consumer of this of this place, but also a someone who co-builds it. So that uh, I think is reflected uh, very strongly in your, you know, really um, carefully worded idea of living in London being or being a Londoner being a commitment. Can you unpack that a little bit for me? Yeah, um, I mean, maybe that's a bit grandiloquent, I suppose. But um, but no, I think that's why I like London rather than, you know, say I'm British or whatever, because I'm, I'm not, because that comes with a lot of connotations of political ones. And um, I don't have a British passport. I don't have that same history and education. But London as as a city, as a tangible place, you know, it's not just the imagined, which I think a nation is. It's also a real place. So um, So I engage with it by... You know, just going to going to shops, going to things that I that I support in my activity. But also, I work in the community garden here, so I like I give some of my time and efforts to green the space to make it a bit nicer. So I think that uh, these little things that are really important, and then and then it is embracing whatever is around. You know, like talking to your neighbours, talking to a curiosity for other things that are going on. Um, not limiting your your experience of London to, you know, your island, your little home in the very narrow sense of flat or house or whatever it is and work, but widening your circle and embracing all of that as part of your home within it. Can I ask, following on from ideas of London and about the politics of the space that you're in, I wonder, just reflecting on your discussion of Notting Hill Carnival say how does gentrification figure into your work on London and on writing around London yeah that's um that's a big bit that I didn't address at all in in the piece but um I think gentrification is a is a big thing that will that would require definition as well but if we if we take the sort of accepted accepted meaning of of commodification and of sort of an imposure of an imposition, rather, of, of of a sense of being. That's how it comes in. So the first element is the commodification of space, which almost eradicates place as a more as a more meaningful way. It's just you know there's a there's a building that yields profit, and it's sold off, and it, there's no consideration given to how people can engage with it. So you know the the public places around it don't really matter. So there's there's that element of gentrification, I think, which also then makes engagement really difficult because you can't afford to live in it. You're 
pushed out for monetary reasons, which breaks, you know, uproots you as well in that in that sense. And the other element of gentrification, which is the one linked maybe to a sort of globalist capitalist idea, it's the the branding, the like basically the monoculture element that um, makes everything look the same, which means you don't have that particularity anymore, um, which I think you would also need for this sense of uniqueness and engagement. Uh, you know, if I bring it back to the roots again, it, it sort of makes the soil completely infertile by this imposed monoculture. You know, I don't know if you watched um, Green Planet recently, but there was this bit of jungle that was completely raised and just planted with palm trees for oil. Um, whereas next to it was that rich, varied, very loud with all sorts of animals and plants and everything growing. And next to it was that monoculture of gentrification. So that's maybe an, an image we can use. <laughs> Do you think it's possible, I was just thinking about what you were saying about Notting Hill Carnival, to have something that is publicly authentic of a, of a maybe still a socially constructed identity, but, but a particular identity, without it being commodified fairly quickly? That's a good question. Um, I mean, as I said, I'm an optimist, so I would like to believe that yes. <laughs> but I think it's, it is becoming much more difficult because everything is embraced, or not embraced really, it's, it's taken over by the commodification. Um, and even if it's just sponsorship, you know, I mean, because ultimately you need funds to do things. And if those funds come from sponsorship, then immediately you step into that world. So, yeah, I would like to think that it's possible, maybe much more on a small scale than on a large scale. Thinking again how uh, about the difficulties with putting down roots into places and, um, and that kind of community, how, do you, how does the internet and kind of the online experience and the online communities figure in your work at all? So at the moment, not at all, um, mm. because I feel that would open up an entire new, new sphere. I think it's probably something I'll, I might have to address sort of as, a, as an outlook, as a, you know, what, how that could influence it. But yeah, those, those who know me know that I'm not a huge fan of social media, um, because I think it's, you know, if we, if we think of roots as something that you know, has to be allowed to grow. I think social media sort of closes it off. I and mean, we all know the idea of echo chambers. We all know the idea of sort of not being exposed to other things by those algorithms because the algorithm is more about, you know, this is what you are, so this is what I'm going to give you. Um, so I think there's a big issue with that. At the same time, it, you know, the, the ways of dealing with it, their next door or their sort of social networks that are emerging that are still tied to that real local place. Um, so they could enhance the local place and help bring people together. But um, yeah, I struggle, I struggle because they, I mean, when we look at who, who creates social media, they're massive international corporations whose interest is not um, giving you a, a unique community experience, but more, you know, like, give me money, so. <laughs> And also, I remember seeing a, I think it was about um, Twitter in the United States, and I don't know the source, but it was saying that actually the vast, vast majority of tweets, I don't remember the percentage, but it was very, very high, was produced by only around 1% of the population. And 
it feels like there's a narrative that social media is representative of society when actually that's not really the the case i don't know if you would agree with with that yeah i think there's an element of social media that that brings you back to the you know the subaltern speaks but is the subaltern heard you know because everyone's allowed to speak on social media but who's heard really and the people who are heard are the people who shout loudest and who like and that creates this spiral that we all know about of you know and so yeah i i don't know if i'm not optimistic about social media shall we say <laughs> it's making me think um so much of that really brilliant conversation the panel talk that we had for the utopias in the commons episode we did a few months back for the techni congress i feel like lots of yeah kind of overlap with that discussion there yeah, that's, I mean, I, I guess it's no surprise that I sort of co-organized that one. <laughs> but, um, but no, that's something I think about a lot in the, when you come back to home, because I think home, as it's mostly understood, especially in that German sense that I didn't at all go into because it always takes a long time to elaborate. But if you look at the, the word Heimat, which is this German idea of home, which is more than, than just your very narrow sense, it's, it's the, you know, the people, it's the landscape, it's everything around it. And it's the myth and the tradition and folklore. But that can be either nostalgic, which I think is a huge element in a lot of our current politics. I mean, you know, um, I guess everyone can guess what I what I'm referring to. But um, but I don't think it's just Brexit. I think it's also other other ways of of independence, of nationalism. So, you know, that that's sort of looking back or looking back at this idealized space. Whereas if you think about home as a utopia, as we talked about it then, a few months ago, as a process, as something that happens in the present, as this commitment to it, you know, which brings us back to commitment, then that changes the idea of, of utopia and of home and as, as something you, know, you commit to, to giving to, you commit to roots in it. I think that optimistic note is perhaps a really nice one to finish on and just to say thank you so much for talking with us and sharing your amazing research. No, thank you for yeah allowing me to do it. <laughs> um, yeah, I hope no one feels that we're taking over this platform and not open because yes, <laughs> as Technicast, obviously we're we're very wel welcoming to alterity to all sorts of ideas and uh, to make us grow together. So no, thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode and hearing more about Julian's work on home and identity. We'll be back next time where things will be getting a little bit surreal here on the Technicast as we turn to our next monthly theme of surrealism. We'll be welcoming PhD student Daniela Georgieva onto the podcast to share her work on Leonora Carrington's paintings and the animals dancing and flying across the canvases. Until then, you can follow us on Twitter at Technicast, where we post regular themed call for papers. If you would like to be featured on the Technicast and share your work with us, please email technicaster at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks again to Julian for sharing his work and for such an interesting chat. Thanks to Techni for their ongoing support and thanks to you for listening. Take care.